welcome back for another juicy episode of the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm Thomas Valentine. Tonight's discussion is taboo addictions. This was recorded at the International Buddhist Recovery Summit 2019 that took place back in September. Speaking of events, I am currently helping organize a Recovery Dharma holiday party in Olympia, Washington, November 16th, 3 to 6 p.m. at Capital Recovery Center. We will be discussing the creation of an intersanga between meetings in Washington State. Jean Tuller is going to be leading the event and sharing her guidance and wisdom. If you live in Washington, or nearby and want to come be a part of that discussion and eat a catered dinner with us, let me know. Thomas Valentine on Facebook, Going Somewhere Sober on Instagram, or email me at finding.valentine at gmail.com. Lastly, a few of our regular announcements. The first Sunday of the month, we have a live recording of the podcast called BRN Academy. Next month's speaker is Martine Batchelor, so stay tuned for more info as it gets closer. If you'd like to support our nonprofit, you can offer Donna or donation at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. that I do have somewhat of an addiction to put myself into places out of my comfort zone and I just keep doing it and no one's ever challenged me on it. (laughs) So the next time um, I'm asked to moderate, you should also say, (laughs) how are you feeling about that, Robin? Um, So um, I'd like to introduce our panel of speakers. Um, We're going to, I'm going to go in the order that you're going to be speaking. That's all right. First up is um, Alex Holt, our treasurer, board treasurer. You've had some opportunity to hear from him already, but uh, a little bit about Alex. Uh, He is the current treasurer of our uh, board, and he was a student of Chosen and Hogan Boys of Great Val Zen Monastery in Oregon for several years. He's a professional accredited transitions minister in the Unitarian Universalist Association and just completed his 14th Transitions Ministry in Seattle, Washington. He now lives in Meadville, Pennsylvania, after moving around quite a bit in the last year, and is in the first year of a half-time contract ministry there. He's been in recovery from alcoholism since June 14, 2003. He's one of the founders of the UUA Addictions Ministry Program and continues leadership with that group. Thank you, Alex, for being here. Alex is going to speak to us uh, in a bit about um, internet addiction, IT addiction. Deborah, Deborah Grace, uh, is a therapist, author, and seeker who believes healing begins when we embrace ourselves with compassion and patience. She has a counseling practice in Lacey, Washington, right here, uh, with a focus on relationships, sexuality, and intimacy. Deborah treats relational addiction with trauma work, mindfulness, and practical tools, helping clients discover and strengthen connection to self, other, and spirit. Deborah has written about her personal journey with love and sex addiction in the books Tango, Stories of Desire, and Poetry, 
and the memoir, What Would Aphrodite Do? For more information, uh, her website, I will actually call this out because we're recording this, uh, www.debragracecounseling.com and www.debragracepoetry.com. Thank you for being here and making this trip today. Gary, Gary, <laughs> just bringing it to the table. <laughs> Gary Sanders is originally from Los Angeles, where he was one of the founders of the original Refuge Recovery, now living in Portland, Oregon, where he's on the teaching staff at Portland Insight Meditation Community in the lineage of Ruth Dennison and is authorized to teach by Robert Beatty. Gary travels throughout North America, offering Buddhist recovery daylongs and workshops. Thank you very much. And Vimla Sara, my teacher. Uh, Vimla Sara has been practicing for 27 years. She's now president of the Buddhist Recovery Network, chair of the Vancouver Tree Ratna Senior. She's a senior uh, teaching She's a senior order member teaching ordination training into the lineage, um, of which I'm a part of, and she's an amazing influence in my life. She's co-founder of Eight Steps, co-founder of the eight-week program Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery. She was awarded an honorary doctorate for her lifetime achievements by the University of East London. She has a Master's of Arts in Education in Creative Writing. Uh, and has written eight award-winning books uh, and working on a new book uh, that will be published next year entitled I'm Still Your Negro, an homage to James Baldwin. She says as someone who grew up in orphanages and on the streets, Buddhism saved her life. Welcome and thank you. Uh, so, uh, Deborah, we'll begin with you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Alex. Uh, I actually forgot to mention, Deborah will be speaking about um, sex and love addiction. Yes. Gary will be speaking about uh, love addiction and shopping. No? Change. Okay. Change. <laughs> <laughs> what will you be speaking about today? Uh, sex. Sex. Okay. So, I'm sorry. Sex and shopping. Um. <laughs> shopping for sex. And Vimalisar will speak to um, eating disorders or overeating compulsion. Uh, okay, Alex, for your um, how about Okay, thank you. I'm going to start with two quotes, and I'm going to take a rather quirky approach to internet addiction, and you can imagine this as being a symbol. But actually, this is just the tool. And the question that I've addressed to some people over the last few days is, are we addicted to the tool or are we addicted to the what's behind it? And then, is that really an addiction? So I'm going to start with two quotes. One is from the late Douglas Adams, the author, from The Salmon of Doubt. He said, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that is invented when you're between 15 and 35 
is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Anything inver invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> Second quote from Tom Robbins, and I'm not sure which book. And I'm paraphrasing, changing the um, pronouns. Science gives us what we need, but magic gives us what we want. So the question I've been pondering around so-called internet addiction is, is it really internet addiction? Is it addiction to our devices? Or is it something different? And I'm going to, for those of us of a certain age range, and I will not ask for who we are, some of us remember transistor radios. Does anybody remember transistor radios? Okay. Do you remember walking around with a transistor radio at your ear or with a very primitive um, headphone listening to rock music in the 60s, maybe 50s, but certainly the 60s and early 70s? And it was amazing because we were hearing new music all the time. And it was arousing our curiosity, among other things, of... How is this changing our world? And in that period of time, new music was coming out every week. And people were sitting around in altered states of consciousness talking about that music. Now, 50, 60 years later, we have another piece of equipment, looks a little bit similar, that we're carrying around, looking at, but is also two-way. Transistor radios were one-way communication. These are two-way. And I've been struck by how that is evoking a different kind of addiction. And you folks were talking about there aren't just negative addictions, there are positive addictions that we can have. And my question that I've been posing now for the last few months is, are we, instead of being addicted to the internet or what else, are we addicted to curiosity? Because I know when I was in my drinking phase, my curiosity was, I wonder how smashed I can get. I wonder how this uh, single malt scotch is going to be because I just loved single malt scotch. And is it going to be different than the single malt scotch I had yesterday? It was curiosity, in part. But it's also the pleasure center of my brain saying more, more. So when we get online, where is our curiosity involved in that? I, oh, <laughs> And Kevin, for one person, would say that I'm always online. My screen time is usually about 45 hours a week, which is quite a bit. And what am I doing? I'm always looking for things. I'm wondering, well, what does medieval, what does old Hittite look like in the contemporary world? Why? But I was curious. So I'm just wondering if the curiosity factor is around 
a really a different kind of addiction that could be positive, could be negative. And the, what Tom Robbins had said about science gives us what we need, but magic gives us what we want, one of the things that happens with addiction and curiosity is magical thinking. And magical thinking can come to, gee, I wonder how it would feel if, and we've probably, many of us, been down that road. So I'm not quite sure that internet addiction is really an addiction. It probably is, and there are probably different flavors of it, but I'm just going to leave you with the idea that because addiction, addiction is such a you know, fancy word these days, maybe another type of addiction, along with all the others we're talking about, is an addiction to curiosity. Because as a species, we are very curious in more ways than one. But we're very curious about the world and the universe and, gee, I wonder what that chocolate pudding would taste like. Or I'm curious about what kind of relationship might that be? So I'd be my, I'm trying to be mindful that my curiosity can get me into a lot of trouble, but it's also part of being human. And I think the internet has given us some wonderful and some less wonderful ways to be curious. So that's my thought. Thank you. So. Open. Oh, actually, um, I'd like to invite um, anyone on the panel as well to um, kind of add on to this if you have um, comments or anything. The thing that struck me is, you know, as addicts, we can rationalize anything. <laughs> and, you know, for, for me, and I, I battle uh, compulsion to get on the internet, but I s clearly see it as. I'm trying to take myself out of the moment. I'm trying to lose myself. I'm not trying to be curious. That's just, uh, for me, that'd be a rationalization. So, uh, and I'm going to talk more about this, but for me, addiction is escape. I don't like what I'm feeling. I don't like what I'm thinking. And I'm going to use whatever I can to get out of this fucking shit. And my third F-bomb this week. <laughs> I'm addicted to saying the F-word. <laughs> use it for emphasis. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the, the rationalization piece is, is such a huge thing that, that has to be part of my practice again and again to make sure that I'm not uh, just making excuses for my poor behavior, my, my the thing that is taking me out of the moment. I um, still have the good fortune to uh, work with young people and some young people say to me that actually we don't understand because they grew up with the internet and so it's normal and why are you calling it an addiction because this is just what we grew up with. We were, you know, from a certain age we were taught to touch the screen and be with the screen and then there are other young people who actually just say yes it is an addiction and it's really wrecking their life. And the other thing that I want to say is this thing about curiosity studies have shown that by the time a child gets to school by the age of five curiosity has been knocked out of them so i think it's really quite interesting you talk about this curiosity i grew up on the quote curiosity killed the cat 
you know, we know that if we're trying to facilitate something and somebody's asking questions, they're difficult. We don't want people to ask questions. And actually, so I think, again, it's really interesting, this curiosity. But I'm not going to support the argument that the Internet is an addiction. I think for some people, it is a huge addiction and it's destroying their lives. I mean, I, as I say, I'm around, I'm around mothers who have kids and their issue is they can't get their kid out of their bedroom. Sometimes when I go back to England, I, I, I babysit for my, my nephews, will babysit. And, and all of a sudden I hear things being thrown across the floor. What's happening? I go up and something happened on the internet with the gaming that they were doing. So it, it's a huge, it, it is huge. Um, I'd like to speak to, because I see it relationally, so I have couples come in and invariably and families that they are not having connection because either both of them or one of them is on their phones a lot. And so I see it as balance, and so we work a lot on that, but it's amazing to me how stubborn people can be <laughs> um, about not creating the time for relationship. And so I see it show up there quite a bit. Um, I also think you know, given our society and we're very isolated um, with teens, that that is their village is online. So there's there's positives and negatives that I see. I see um, the internet can be attachment. It can be, you know, I will listen to a certain podcast and that voice is soothing to me and I know that person, I feel like I know that person, but I am being fed somehow with that one-sided relationship, but I would say, um, so there's all these nuances, and I definitely feel, um, you know, I see the effect of, of screens and technology um, hurting people in a way that they, they want something else, but they can't quite stop. So that's... Just very briefly, um, relative to what you said, I grew up on a farm in Maine. I was home taught in the late 50s, early 60s, and I had two hours of homework in school every day. And I became intensely curious about everything. That's one thing. And I will say that right now, as I'm approaching 70, I'm living alone with my two cats. So that probably says something about my lifestyle. <laughs> one, one last thing. Once upon a time, when you arrived on the doorstep of somebody's house and they opened a door and they greeted you and welcomed you in, you were either offered water or you would ask for clean water. Now, when you arrive at somebody's door, you're asking for the password. What's the password? <laughs> Alex, if you can hang on to the mic, I'm gonna see if the audience has any questions for, for you or anyone on the panel. Oh yes, you're yes, you're right. Um, okay, sorry about that, um, Shamara. Uh, yeah, that's why I mentioned last night why I think a lot more people should be uh, involved in some sort of like Buddhist recovery because a lot of people are in denial about a lot of things, and I fully believe that. A lot of people are addicts they just don't know it because jobs 
can be addiction. Work can be addiction. Money, you know. I just wanted to make that comment. The, I, I totally relate to the idea of curiosity around the internet, but for me it's instant gratification. And I realized it was a problem when I started to try to establish a deeper meditation practice. And I had to stop and Google something that, you know. I just want to make a comment. I think two cats is completely healthy. <laughs> I am just worried about uh, Internet addiction, too, because, uh, you know, they, um, I think, you know, like the... Uh, uh, Facebook programmers and things like that have um, knowingly um, programmed their software to, you know, we're all wired for addiction and they've, you know, um, purposely uh, programmed their software to, to tap into that so that we are all addicted to what we see online. So I think we should be really careful about that. Some of my take on addiction is that uh, basically everybody, uh, I think everybody that lives on this planet is wired within themselves for an addiction. And it's the outside stuff that could trigger the internal stuff within us, like our chemistry and our body. It's just like, okay, internet or the cell phone, basically the cell phone, we get a certain ring on it. And it sets off a chemical reaction within ourselves that feel, makes us feel good. And when we're not getting that ring, you know, we're not getting that chemical drug. So we start hitting a down on that. We start craving, we craving for that. We start craving for that upper, you know, to, to feel good again. So we want to feel good again. And, uh, and I think like that curiosity is a part of the way that leads more and more and more with the rational thinking that, uh, you know, basically feeds into it to, uh, you know, to be able to uh, uh, put fuel on the fire for our addiction. You know, I want to see this and I want to see more of that and more of this and before we know it, we're hooked, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. Bottom line is, I think it, a lot of it, so much of our addiction is our chemical structure uh, by conditioning, you know, the way we've grown up and everything, and society and the way we uh, act and react in society. That's why I really believe that uh, a good meditation practice is uh, a good way to get to know ourselves and uh, explore the craving and aversion we have within ourselves to be able to become equanimous and uh, non more non-reactive to uh, the things that are around us. Thank you. I'm Cayenne, and uh, I'm totally addicted to uh, distraction. And one of the best ways for me is, is all the devices that I have, whether it's uh, playing a video game, binge-watching something on Netflix, um, and it, it, uh, 
It affects me in more ways than just my mind. I'm sitting on the sofa. I'm not at, I'm not at exercising. I, I have osteoporosis, and it would be a really good idea for me to get out and do some walking. But it's so much easier. The path of least resistance is to stay on the sofa. The other thing is, and I did not know this, I, I, I'm, why, why can't I meditate? I have plenty of time to meditate. Why aren't I meditating every day? I can meditate for hours. I have time. Well, one of the things that I have a, a, a problem with is I stay up too late. And so I made a commitment to my sponsor that I would be in bed by midnight. But I did not promise that I would go to sleep by midnight. <laughs> and so I'm there with my device. And, and okay, I'll, I'll just work one more crossword uh, jigsaw puzzle, and then I'll go to sleep. And then I, I, when I do that, I, I plug my uh, earplugs in, and on YouTube, I bring up the music to go to sleep by. So, you know, that's all the ways it, it has made inroads into my life. And I know I'm addicted. My wife denies that she's addicted, but it's affected. You know, she comes in, I mean, hi, honey, I'm home. Beeline for the, for the uh, computer to catch up on the news and there are certain subjects in the news that are, are taboo in our household because I can't handle it. And the other thing, the positive, there is one tiny positive thing, is that at the end of the evening, we sit together and we, with, with one of the devices, and we play Sudoku together. We, we both work on a Sudoku game. So we do, and, and I started that, and I started it because I just wanted her close to me. I wanted the physical contact. I didn't realize at the beginning that's what it was, but that was what it was. So there's so many ways it impacts our lives. And uh, we're wired. Every time I get a, a positive response, oh, that piece of the puzzle went in. A little shot of dopamine. More and more and more. And so more and more and more leads to more and more and more. All right, we're going to move on to um, sex and love addiction with Deborah. Sure, yes. Okay, hi. <laughs> um, so I thought I could start with a little exercise. First of all, I'm going to model um, my self-care around modulating my emotions because I noticed I'm nervous to talk in front of so many people because I'm usually one-on-one -on -one or have a family or a couple. So um, I feel nervous. I'm going to name it. It shows up as skitteriness in my chest and kind of a, like a little uh, punch to the throat. <laughs> And so it's like I feel the body sensation, and the reason I'm nervous is because I care deeply about this community and about this subject, and I, I want to be helpful. So those are, that was uh, what, you know, kind of my process and what I help clients with a lot with um, noticing where they are in their body. So um, I think I'll speak a little more to love addiction, but sex addiction is certainly in there, um, given that you're going to spend. Um, and I think nothing... Love and sex are, they are our very survival. They are, are we chosen? Are we wanted? Um, Helen Fisher talks about when they looked in the brain, um, 
um, thirst, hunger, and desire are all right next to each other in the center in the most primitive parts of our brain. So um, it is normal, it is natural to want to be loved, to want to have someone want to mate with us, because that means our DNA will continue, you know, on the very basic cave, cave level. So um, I just say that because I feel like um, we can have so much judgment about these, I think this is one of the most taboo ones because it involves someone else. Um, it, a lot of misconduct can come in if we're using other people. Um, certainly other addictions hurt our families and those we love, but in uh, these cases, it's actually another person directly. Um, so, you know, we talk about, I have people call me who are suicidal, who I have a gun in my truck. I just found out that she was cheating. Um, self-harm, suicide, that is the level that people get to when they are either too dependent on a person or feel that they've been um, betrayed. So they're just, they're so core, they're so basic, um, and I sit with that. Um, for myself as well, I became interested in this subject when I was six years old and walked in on my mother having sex with someone who was not my father. And it has been a life journey of mine just to I've just put myself in places and learned and written and became a therapist to help others. So, um, you know, and I feel red talking about it. And um, I appreciate this community very much. <laughs> so I just, um, you know, I want to say that. Um, do you see me? Do you get me? Do you choose me? Those are questions that we're asking when we meet anybody. Even here, you know, just for a second. Do you choose me? We're social creatures. We need each other. We need to feel like um, someone has our back. You know, our very survival depends on it on a very cellular level. So often I find when couples and individuals come with sex and love is that their, their life, like their pie is very skewed and they have, they have focused all on getting this from this other person. And so first what we do is we sit and we um, just be with it. A lot of people have never just sat with their yearning and their needing connection. So I do a lot of affirming of attachment and where did you maybe not get that when you were young or not getting it now? And kind of starting with that, it's sometimes the first time people have ever felt like it's okay to want love <laughs> or to feel like it's that they didn't get enough love and how that's affected them. Um, and then it's the, it's the work of kind of, of often building a life, building more supports. What else do you love? Um, where can you ask for help? Where can you be mindful in that you can permeate when you are with others? Often we have walls up. So I'm kind of going all over. But um, the work that I do, um, it's such a lot of sitting and holding. And for myself, that's true as well. It's um, sitting, being with the feeling, naming it. Um, and then uh, it's amazing how it's almost like when you when you plant a plant and it you water it and then it starts to take and so I see clients come in and they're they're just um, they don't yeah they're wilted you know or they're half dead and they come in and they start to um, love themselves first they start to fill the, their own cups and then they start to you know blossom and have that turgidity and then their relationships can be more um, more equal. It can feel like an honoring of themselves and another and not so one-sided. Um, so that's, that's what I get to see. 
um, and in myself too, had to go through that process. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to more like questions because that's easier for me. But <laughs> I thought we could, uh, could I lead you in a little um, moment of just uh, tapping into this in yourself? So close your eyes. And I want you to imagine a, f a moment when you have not felt, when you've wanted. You've wanted another, you've wanted to feel loved. It could be romantically or not. Love addiction can be with our children, with, with everybody, with um, friends. So just find a moment when you have felt wanting. And then place your hand on your heart and kind of hold that, or somehow hold that energetically. And then take your other hand and put that on top of that hand. And that really symbolizes what we're doing here, that community, that larger uh, capital S self, that we're not alone, that we have support. I mean, I want you to take one hand and put it to someone near you. You don't, don't touch them, but just kind of energetically put that to another human while you have one hand on yourself. And notice kind of, did my heart rate spike? Did I? <laughs> and that, that's, um, you know, that's balance. That's the middle path. That's where we're, um, where we're aiming with a lot of our, our practices. It's that, can I be with myself and feel held with the universe and know that I'm some part of something bigger? And can I be in connection with another and with community? And, um, yeah, so that's that's what a lot of the work that I see with love and, and sex addiction is is that process, you know, over a long time. Um, do I have time? Are we done time? <laughs> okay. I, I have a poem I thought I'd read, just kind of sharing. Uh, yeah. So this is my own personal work. Um, my therapist urges me to sit with longing to explore the texture of need, to not make the phone call or post the email, not return the heated glance in the parking lot, not wake my lover as I wriggle beside him. He is staging an intervention, wants me to pull the IV out of my arm, lose the steady man morphine drip. Describe the trough, he gently advises. Stop mounting the peak desire and desire's twin peak despair. Spend some time in the base camp, air out the tent, let your blisters heal. He doesn't understand the terrain. He is in the Sierras while I am in the Himalayas. In the one week between our sessions, oh how I do wallow, the universe I both scale and swallow. Bring it on, he said when I first handed him a wad of 20 poems, apologizing for my self-imposed extra credit homework. But then last week he received the next installment with, wow, you are prolific. And I thought, you don't get it. I could bury you in paper. I could book your whole day, your week, your life. It is too much for one mortal man, this yearning I've touched. It is a water buffalo in the belly of a boa. It is the sun, pure vision for a billion years, never digested, never spent. So that's kind of my own, <laughs> um, the feeling of it and um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. 
um, two things that come to mind is um, something that Pema Chodron talks about um, very briefly. She spoke about somebody who just didn't want to speak to her and she would do everything. She would pull the chair out for the person to sit on. She'd smile at them and she'd just do all these things. And one day she just got it that actually she just could not sit with the fact that this person didn't want to talk with her. And that's been uh, a really great teaching for me. The other thing that I want to say is, is that um, I am so happy for the Dharma. I remember um, I got involved with the Dharma when I was 27, 26, 27. And I can remember that first year realizing I will never love again in that way. And I was angry. I was angry that I just would not have that intoxicating love because my first ever relationship was um, with a woman who was um, 18 years my senior and I loved to madness. I was Eustacia in Return of the Native. I loved to madness and I would look at her and she would just change and I couldn't, it was like she would become this being and I wasn't aware of what was going on. I know now that I was in love with this illusion but at the time, before my eyes, she would just transform into this amazing being because I was just so intoxicated with this um, love for her. And I, I remember when that um, relationship came to an end, it was almost like half my body had been torn apart from me. But I'm so glad for the Dharma because I never, ever wanted to love like that again. And the Dharma has taught me something. got questions in the audience. Uh, I'm Cliff. Thank you for your uh, your poetry and your work. Can you talk a little bit about the role that taboo plays in your work with uh, couples, individuals, therapists, and particularly about uh, how uh, connecting in a healthy way with desire? Um. It's a great question. Yeah, I feel like we spend a lot of time, norm I spend a lot of time normalizing and naming and making it okay for people to want what they want. And then moving from there, is this getting in your life, in the way of your life? Is this, you know, relationally a problem? Because sometimes it is hard. Some things like porn, um, some people can use them in moderation and it doesn't affect their life. It's actually adding to, I'm, you know, part of a very sex positive community, the um, ASECT, the certification that I'm almost done getting. Um, they don't say porn is an, is an addiction and that there's not a sex addiction. I do see sometimes otherwise. So sometimes it's refraining, reframing for people. Um, you know, I have a lot of partners where one person is using porn and then the other, it's often, a, you know, someone in a female body is upset that someone in a male body is using porn. And um, so sometimes when they have some differences of um, reframing that, or could, it, could this be your partner's sexual individual journey? How does it relate to you? Does it harm it? Could it be something that's shared? Um, sometimes those are really amazingly positive things. Um, you know, I've had people come to me who've had pedophilia fantasies before and are tortured. I mean, suicidal because of them. And we've worked with some trauma sometimes, but also, um, just like my acceptance of them and their acceptance of this is where I'm at often is the healing that's needed. Um, so yeah, when it's 
a lot of it is just having someone else say, you know, if it's a if it's a kink, someone in the you know that's their desire. I mean, that's their interest. Um, is it serving you? So, yeah, taboo for one person is not for another. Um, does that answer your question enough? Yeah. Okay. Hi, I was just wondering what what the signs of love addiction are and if you work with non-monogamous couples where non-monogamy can still be accepted without being treated like an addiction. Um, so some of the signs of love addiction. Um, you know, I mean, typically it's sort of loss of function is when we look at addiction, but in terms of relationship, much more... Um, we try, you know, it, on the spectrum, because when we fall in love, we do, we have this whole cascade of chemicals, but is it, can I, do I have other areas of my life? Can I achieve peace in moments? Are friends still interesting? Is my work still interesting? Can I feel like I um, am still having, you know, taking care of myself? Those are all questions that I ask someone. Um, when those start to fall away, um, I'm ignoring my children. I haven't worked out in months. I'm up all night texting. You know, then that's um, so you know it's so personal for everybody whether it's an addiction or not. Um, a lot of people kind of know. They feel like I just feel out of balance. I feel some people. I mean, and others don't as much. So as soon as I say that, I'm like, wait. <laughs> um, yeah. So having those conversations, um, kind of seeing where they're at in terms of this beginning. You know, where they're at in the relationship. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, with codependency, I have people who, um, I have a client and her mother died and she's, she's just, she can't get over not being invited to, or not, she was cut out of the will, but anyways, just her whole life, she's not paying attention to her children. She's ignoring her relationship because she's so upset. So to me, that is where we get into codependency and, you know, a form of love addiction. Um, yeah, I definitely work with non-monogamous couples a lot. And again, it's, um, does this feel in balance for you? Are you having honest communication? Do you have a solid foundation? Um, is non-monogamy because your primary relationship isn't healthy and you're seeking something that you could maybe get from each other, but um, haven't done that work? Um, sometimes for sure there's, you know, there's outside needs or people wanting expanded relationships um, and monogamy is not the model that they want. So. Um, there's usually that feeling of settledness, of groundedness that's there when it's that's the right fit for them and they've done the work. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jesus. And uh, I'm also nervous. <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for your words. Uh, it was really, um, yeah, really touched my heart. And um, I guess I don't really have more, uh, don't have a question so much as a comment about uh, expressing gratitude for for you and um, the idea of like creating space and affirming people. Um, I feel like that's what the, what is helpful and what is helpful the most to me about um, Dharma and my path is that it feels like um, in my addiction, well, in, Buddhist teachings, I hear that everything is workable. You know, everything is acceptable. Bring everything to the path. And before that, I felt like I couldn't talk about things. I couldn't bring stuff to the path. I couldn't, you know, bring, especially sex and kinks and all that stuff. And I feel like 
that's what the beautiful thing about Buddhism is that everything can be brought. Everything is part of the path. Um, so I feel like that's the biggest gift from um, Buddhism is that everything is workable. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Ready to move on? There he is. All right. Thank you. Hey. So, um, you know, I'm just thinking about my personal journey, and it's been such a big part of my practice to clearly see the stories that I've been hanging on to. You know, and, and talking about rationalization, you know, just like more and more and more is progressed down the path and awareness uh, cultivates more and more and just seeing clearly where I've, you know, rationalized things or, you know, I've hung on to stories with, um, for the longest time, I kept telling myself that I had a problem with cocaine and hard drugs, but I didn't drink every day and I didn't smoke pot every day. So I didn't have a problem with that, you know, and, and I had, a, I got a DUI, I don't know, 25 years ago or so, and I stopped doing everything for one month. If I have a problem, uh, then I'm not going to be able to stop for a month. And I, so I white knuckled it for a month and that kept me going for another, uh, oh geez, I got that, but I, I'm so bad about time. <laughs> it kept me going for a long time. And then finally getting that clarity in that last bender that I realized that I have to stop doing everything, that I'm creating my own misery by any kind of drugs and alcohol. And, you know, and, and if I found myself um, even just a little bit inebriated and somebody show up with hard drugs, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then I'd be off on another bender, you know, and, I, and I'd catch myself again and again and then end up with that shame. God, I made these promises to myself and here I am again. And so, you know, getting that clarity to to finally drop everything and and it and it just, you know, with that clarity, it just fell away. You know, and I, and, I, and I did put work to it. You know, I I reluctantly joined AA because I, I tried a bunch of other things and I just didn't find fellowship. I didn't find support. That's the, the one thing in any of these programs, the thing that's helped me the most is connection, you know, and, and support. And so, you know, finally finding a, you know, for me, it was a, a, a men's AA group. You know, this is way before we even started, uh, you know, Refuge Recovery in LA. But, uh, you know, I found this men's group that was really supportive. And there, and it was AA, but there was guys that were talking about cocaine and other drugs, and so I felt, you know, this is my clan. You know, these these are people that I can relate to. But then, you know, so I put down the drugs and alcohol, and then, you know, as clarity uh, cultivates more and more, and that's the great thing about this practice. You just can't unring that bell, you know. You can't put the toothpaste back in the, <laughs> the toothpaste uh, tube. Uh, you know, I would clearly see myself when I felt overwhelmed, when I felt super uncomfortable, when I felt stressed out, I went straight for these other things, these secondary addictions. You know, I went to sex, you know, and, and it was, and I clearly saw, it was just like scoring drugs. Locate it, conquest, acquisition, do it, and then feel shame afterwards. Because it was just like so fleeting. You know, that, that, that ritual, you know, and even like thinking about it, you know, just like when I was about to score cocaine, my, my palms had sweat and I'd feel, you know, kind of that, 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 you talk about adrenaline earlier, right? You know, feel that, that rush, like, I'm going to do this. I found this, I'm, you know, and then, and then do it. And then it's just like, oh, well, that didn't fucking help anything. 
you know, my problems are still here. I'm still, you know, maybe it's even grown because I've ignored these things are at hand that's, that's stressing me out. So, you know, in my supportive community, these guys that I loved and that helped me get sober, you know, that helped me support me stay sober from drugs and alcohol, I would go and I would share with these guys, you know, I keep acting out with sex and, I, and it's, this is really bothering me. And what I, I'm going to use you as a prop, I would get the, well, you're still sober. It's all right. You know, and, and I would and I would say, like, no, it's not all right. I don't feel good about this. And so, you know, the the thing about it, you know, I brought a lot of awareness to it, but it was awareness with shame. You know, I this is the thing I don't want to do. This is the thing I am I have this compulsion to act out in a certain way. And, you know, and then as as time went on, I, I started to see it in other ways too, you know, with with compulsive collecting with my eBay rating is fucking through the roof, <laughs> which, you know, and I rationalize that I'm a collector, you know, I would find my last name is Sanders. You should have seen the Colonel Sanders collection I had before. <laughs> you know, I have, a, I have a jackalope collection. I have a brass knuckle collection. I have th these things that, that I filled my house up with. And, you know, that's the thing. I used to make a lot of money. I had a huge house in California that I just filled with stuff and none of it made me happy. And so, you know, and as awareness builds and I'm, you know, and I'm sharing in this group that, that, I, you know, that I have shame around this thing and I'm not getting the support. So I, you know, I started looking for other help. You know, I, I, I went to some SAA meetings. I felt discouraged because, um, you know, this is even in LA where, you know, it was, there's a pretty strong community there. Most of the guys in those group would have maybe six months, eight months, you know, sobriety from the, from this addiction, and I didn't feel really encouraged, and and that added to my shame, you know, that, that like I'm not finding this community and and this this thing that that's so heavy and this bothers me, and so I put all this all this effort to it, and you know, and I created, you know, in the SAA they talk about the your inner circle, the you know the stuff that you don't do, and here's the outer circle that's kind of okay. You know, I tried working with that model. I, um, I, in, in our little breakout group earlier, somebody brought up uh, Patrick Carnes. I remember getting his book and some of the SAA literature, and I would turn it around so the spine didn't show in my library at home. You know, I hid it within things because I didn't want this. This, this, is, this is a shameful thing. I, I, I hated it. I, I put so much energy to it, and it just kept happening again and again and again. And then... The, the big piece about this is at the same time I had uh, made that commitment of offering myself metta for a year. You know, when I'd, I'd started in the Zen tradition, I switched to the insight tradition, and it was introduced to metta in the, in the category of, uh, you know, offering metta to, to these, you know, uh, to the world, essentially. The hardest category by far was myself because of all that shame. May I be happy? No fucking way. <laughs> I, you know, I carry around all the shame. I keep acting out irresponsibly. I keep, I keep um, not honoring my my marriage. And so, so I, you know, I I made this commitment, offering myself meta and forgiveness for a year, at least a few minutes daily for a year. I ended up doing it for two and a half years. And so, the original intention was just to stop hating myself. What happened in that first year was. Not only did I change my relationship with myself, but with the world. 
I stopped going outside and looking at women as objects or, you know, uh, these conquests. I started, uh, you know, one thing that I heard in, in early recovery groups, uh, some of the men would talk about, you know, seeing, you know, really seeing women as somebody's sister or somebody's mother. And it was through the meta practice that I was finally able to actually cultivate that, to, to go from this thing that I understood logically to this thing that I actually like knew firsthand and understood in my heart. So once I started changing my relationship with myself and changing the relationship with the world, I stopped meeting these um, compulsions with shame and, and, you know, and started forgiving myself. And when that happened, it completely fell away. And it, I didn't have to put any more energy to it. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to focus on it. It just completely fell away. But then, you know... Um, that was the thing that I was focused on and, you know, as awareness builds and then starting to see even the slightest ways, you know, yeah, I would, I would feel uncomfortable. I would go to a store. I had money. I didn't suffer repercussions. You know, I could, I could uh, people would come to my house and they would be impressed by my art collection or by my watch collection or whatever it is. You know, I didn't, I didn't suffer those repercussions other than uh, as you know, obviously, I felt shame about uh, drugs and alcohol, and I and I and I felt uh, shame around uh, acting out violently and and uh, and angrily and and you know and, and with sex and and then and then starting to see even like buying stuff just didn't make me happy. There was that initial thing. I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to go spend money and get this thing, and then just that that you know and then that ritual and the conquest that wasn't really there, and 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 you know and then acquiring this thing, and and it just didn't solve anything. And so, you know, bringing some awareness around that, offering myself forgiveness for that, uh, getting rid of the shit out of my house <laughs> has been a huge part of the process. Going from moving from California to Oregon, you know, we had a huge house. And when we went to move, like, pile, like piling this stuff up, like the stuff that's in my closets and the stuff that my kids had that nobody touched anymore, it was just this mountainous stuff. And so it was so freeing to give it away to charity. You know, there was literally probably about four to six truckloads from the, the some like the veteran service and some of these other, the blind society that came and picked up stuff that we just, I mean, it was just tons of, literally tons of stuff. And, and being in a place in my practice where it was just like, oh, here's another burden off of me. I'm not, this isn't my identity. I'm not a, I'm not a great collector. These are the things that I that I use to take me out of the moment, and and it does not have value. It's just burdening me. And so you know, and and I ended up um, we made a we made a valiant effort in in, in our marriage, and, and we ended up getting divorced last year. And and you know, going from the family home to my own home, you know, in 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 a lot of that stuff, getting rid of a lot of that stuff, and and not having anywhere in me like oh she's taken that I don't, but i wanted like no just take it that doesn't define me my happiness comes from within my happiness comes from my practice my my happiness comes from being comfortable in my own skin and it's meta and forgiveness is what made that it's not working the steps it's not it's not connecting with others it's this inside job that took a lot of and that's the, the, the weird paradox. It took so much effort to finally get to this point to realize that it doesn't take any effort whatsoever. To, to be unburdened, to not, to not 
want to act out to take me out of this moment that like think about this exact moment like what's really wrong in this moment you know it's it's not humid like it was yesterday it's pretty it's pretty comfortable it's not it's not you know i'm i have an aversion towards sun <laughs> that's why i moved to oregon <laughs> it's not sunny today yay <laughs> but that's all you know all that stuff that stuff is relative it's it's about a relationship to it and so um, that by far uh, this, the personal practice of, of offering myself kindness, of forgiveness, of uh, you know finding equanimity in this meat robot in this moment. That, that's that's been the key. That's freedom. Thanks. Thank you. That's pretty incredible. It made me think about when he was talking about downsizing and awareness and the Dharma teaching us about, oh, this is what's going on. And so back to internet for just a moment. This morning I got up at four o'clock and I'm tired because I haven't gotten much sleep and I was feeling a little bit just weary this morning. And what I did was I got on my tablet and I got on Facebook and I started looking at cat pictures, cute cat pictures. And then I looked at the two cats that I have, pictures of them, and I was thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? And what I realized, and this has happened before, but it was an important insight this morning, was unconditional love. As mentioned earlier about living alone with my two cats. And my partner Deborah lives right now 3,000 miles away from where I live. And so what I do is I keep everything at a distance. But this morning I had that insight, why on earth am I looking at my cats? Because, well, they don't give me unconditional love, but I give them unconditional love. They are my children. And I just realized how powerful that need and want is in my life. I would not have realized that a number of years ago until I started learning the precepts, the Dharma, and the teachings. I would have just gotten caught up in it like the possessions you were talking about. And so it was a really important insight for me. And I thank, I thank this group for that because it helped me with the awareness this week, not only what's going on here, but what's going on, as you said, in our own heart. Do your cats know that you look at other cats on the internet? <laughs> Are they okay with that? Right now, there's a very pregnant third cat at my door every day waiting for food. They are not happy. Um, thank you so much for that. I can really relate to the possessions. Um, we were talking in our group about how addic addictions can sh shape shift. Um, and so for me, at one point, I thought, um, wow, my most intimate relationship is with my clothes. <laughs> Just in terms of the time I spent with them and in my closet and thrift shopping. And um, 
And that one doesn't, you know, I'm, that one I'm still working with. So it's like, you know, we can get to a point and it's sort of seeing it and accepting it. I was bribing myself after this. I'm like, I'll go have a kombucha and Barbara's Organic Jalapeno Cheese Puffs because I came here and this was hard. So it's, you know, these things. Is that an addiction or is it a, you know, a normal reward? So all these, you know, ways and then just a lot of kindness around it's okay to it's okay to, you know, have these things sometimes and looking at them, the awareness. So I love the, the metas, what I do with clients so much. So thank you for sharing your story. How about uh, questions, comments? Thank you. thank you for sharing about the meta. I had the same experience. I did it, I did it for a year and it's like Pema gave me pres pres uh, permission to love myself. And, you know, the, the, the slogan, come let us love you till you can love yourself. Well, that's fine for you. Okay, you can do that. But it's not okay for me. And so that excites. Thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you. My name's Jim. Thank you for uh, sharing that on uh, sex addiction. I appreciate that. Uh, basically, that's been one of my uh, biggest struggles in uh, the addictive field. And, and I haven't been involved in a recovery community for quite some time. And I felt something was missing, uh, you know, for me. And coming here, basically, uh, on my mind and what I've been endeavoring to work on is that self-acceptance and uh, coming here and being able to see others that are struggling with similar addictions and coming out and voicing it, uh, which I haven't done in a long time, is uh, really freeing. It's, uh, you know, being able to see the unconditional love in people's eyes and uh, the acceptance, the level of acceptance here is just uh, healing in itself. So I want to thank you all for being here and uh, allowing me to be part of it. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dan again. Um, so I, I had a similar experience. Like uh, I went to uh, a men's meeting, but it wasn't intended to be a men's meeting. It was a nor our normal Tuesday night, but no women showed up that time, and it turned into one. And suddenly I started sharing about something I'd been dealing with um, with sex just during that short period of time, and I'd been coming back from a relapse on alcohol. And... Um, and there's periods, I think, when our brains just, just don't function right, right? Like, you're just, you're just still just literally coming off the effects of the drug and the alcohol. And, um, well, I wasn't sure. Like, I, I was just compulsively, you know, engaging in these acts and without any joy, um, but couldn't stop myself. And I, and I was just terrified by it because I didn't need to drink, but I, I, I couldn't stop doing this other thing. And, uh, and I got the exact same experience, uh, you know, which is people patting me on the back and just going, you know, I don't think you can do that too much. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And, um, and my gut said, like, these guys are wrong. 
you know, and, uh, and, and I got through that. But as I look back on it, I, I think one of the things that I worry about at times, and I, I'm just bringing this up as a topic for things to think about, is that this is my Buddhist recovery group, the Buddhist 12-step group. We're supposed to be there for everything. We're there for gamblers, for, you know, sex, for, for everything. Yet we don't have anybody in the room that's informed about that topic. And so we've got people that are willing to engage and prefer an opinion on a different addiction that they're not experiencing and sort of minimizing possibly the damage that's being done or how dangerous it is. Um, and I, I think we have to try and be more humble and not speak to the things that we don't know about um, and, and maybe not minimize at times because, um, you know, um, that said, meetings are hard, you know, and, and we're presented with a lot of hard options. I'm not being super critical of those guys. They still showed me enough love, and I managed to move through it just by my gut instincts. Um, but, um, but anyhow, that, that was my experience with that. It's very similar to yours. I felt Gary. So I, I want to. Um, is this a burning question? I, I just I'm noticing the time. Stephen, I've, I've been thinking since you talked about internet addiction as being the rationalization and escape. What is escape? Is there any times that it's okay to escape? And the three examples I thought of in the last few minutes is if I go into a restaurant and I see a young couple dating and they're on their iPhones, I go, my God, they can't even talk to each other. If I go into a restaurant with my wife and we're sort of waiting and we've been talking all day in the car, and one of us wants to look at the iPhone, well, that's rude. Am I escaping talking to my wife? And then when I'm waiting out here in this room for the next meeting and I pull out my iPhone, uh, was that escaping my unwillingness to be aware of what it's like to wait or to talk to the people who are sitting with me? So I, th I think it's kind of relative. Um, what kind of escape is, is, is okay and what isn't? And, and the other thing about, I, I, I think, the iPhone or, or, or the Internet is it, it's such a door to all kinds of options that we didn't used to have. Um, one of the things I like about mindfulness is it says mindfulness helps you deal with unpleasant experience. Mindful helps you be present with pleasant experience. But when is it okay to say, this isn't pleasant, I want to get out of it? I, I'm not sure about it. That's, it's all about balance, right? I mean, one of the big barometers with a lot of this stuff is, you know, how, what's our relationship to it? Do we, if we do this thing, do we feel shameful? Are we hiding it from others? You know, are we turning that book around so they can't see the spine? <laughs> you know, is, is this something that we would be willing to share with our friends and our, our community? You know, so that's a, that's a good way to kind of take the temperature of, about it. But, um, you know, you're, it's, it's all relative, right? And so it's, it's, this is just, this is the practice. You know, Norm Fisher says, you know, eventually we get to the point to where life becomes our practice and practice becomes our life. So like, it's a constant check in, like what's self-care and what's indulgent? What's escape and what's, what's uh, uh, just giving in? I, I allow myself to eat three double stuffed Oreos a day. That's, that's my thing. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't eat a whole package. I don't, uh, I don't eat other stuff. Other sweets, I do three a day. And that, for me right now, right now, that's what's skillful. I have no problem with that. 
I don't hide it. You know, it's out. But my my girlfriend's kid eats them. He's kind of a pain in the ass. But <laughs> sometimes I don't. I can't quite get three. You know, there's two left. <laughs> but yeah, like that. This is this is the practice. All right, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Vimla Sara, who will be talking about food. Well, I want to say that um, I'm nervous too, and um, my heart is is beating. Um, and I want to, I, I think of uh, the late um, writer, Pat Parker, the African-American lesbian writer who once wrote, first you remember I'm black and second you forget I'm black. And so I tell myself, first I remember that the majority of you here in this room is white and second I forget you're white. Yeah, because for me um, going into the rooms of AA just wasn't possible for me. Completely traumatic and uh, even um, Gary, well, no, I think it's a it's, it's it's a political statement, Gary and I, being on this panel together. Because once upon a time, I I would have been completely shit scared sitting next to somebody who looked like Gary, because not because of what he looked like, but because in England where I grew up, people like that did very evil things to black people. Yeah, yeah. So. This thing, again, it's a taboo. Often, I know many people who are in the rooms. Uh, I work with uh, people of color in uh, recovery, and one of the things they say is, is they can't talk about the, their race. Yeah. So I just want to name that. So, um, you know, I was known as the Champagne Charlie girl. Okay, and that's sexy to talk about, isn't it? Champagne and Charlie. I used to be the artistic uh, director of London Mardi Gras Art, so I was involved in organising the biggest open air party in London. Yeah, and I introduced the champagne tents, and I'd be completely out of my face on stage because I was a performer, then hosting to over half a million people and being completely out of my head but nobody knew that minutes before I had my head down the toilet so let's talk about taboos if I said um, to at the board here we cannot have cookies in the room they would have walked out it's okay to have cookies and cakes in the room but if I said if somebody said let's have alcohol in the room or drugs in the room there's no way they could be in there, yeah? But you've got cookies out there in the room, and I can't say. No, that was another reason why I couldn't go into the rooms of 12 Steps, because we know that those of you who identify as alcoholics, you were addicted to liquid sugar, and then you went on to solid sugar. And that solid sugar was everywhere. I, you know, once upon a time, I could not walk into the room and see food and not eat it and have my head down the toilet. Okay. So when we think about um, taboos, firstly, I want to look at, like, how can um, eating be an addiction? Often, you know, some people try and make it 
normal. You know, it's oh, it's not. You know, it's 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 okay. But if we look at the four C's of addiction, craving. Yeah, I had a lot of craving, craving for sugar, craving, craving for food. And there was also, because I was uh, diagnosed as a bulimic anorectic, I was a failed anorectic, okay? So that means is that, you know, I was anorectic and actually, you know, my body was at a particular weight where it was unsociable, okay? And I couldn't, because I was cycling four hours a day and living on three crackers a day, my body couldn't cope with it. And I started binging. And... um and then there is the compulsion, the compulsion, the obviously the compulsion, the compulsion to eat or the compulsion to restrict, the loss of control. Let me tell you about the 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 loss of control. And some of you will know this. I we we hear that um, oh well, it's different if you're an alcoholic. It's very clear that you know you can't drink alcohol. Well, you've got a drink. The way I see it, it's like you've all got a drink, but there's one al one drink that you can't drink, which is alcohol. For those of us who have food addictions, there are certain alcohols, okay? Sugar is one of my alcohols. And so therefore, I have to renounce sugar because if I put sugar in my system, I lose complete control. I have an allergy to sugar. So I have to look at the labels. I have to look at the labels because it, it may be, it's, it's not like the first day I'm gonna lose control. But after three or four days of having the sugar in my body, I'm in the sugar and I don't want to have my head down the toilet. What some people don't know, there is that uh, the other C is the using despite the consequences. When I started recording, um, re recording my food and I was throwing up 40 times a day. So I was throwing up more than that because it slowed down. And with a bulimic, it's not, you might binge and eat three tubs of Kentucky chicken, and blah, blah, blah. Or you might just eat one cookie because basically for a, a bulimic, if you've decided you're only going to eat this and you eat one thing over that, then it's a binge and you want to get rid of it. Okay. So a binge can be one cookie. Okay. But using despite negative consequences. There was one day I'd been binging. I had, and we can't talk about binging and purging. It's taboo. And I had purge and food got lodged in my throat. And I'm jumping up and down by that toilet pan trying to release the food. And somehow it released, I passed out. What was I doing 45 minutes later? Yeah, what was I doing? Eating and purging again. And what many people don't know, for me, that actually it can be quite trance-like when you go on a binge. People don't know that, that we can be addicted to the altered states that actually happen when you're on a binge. And balance, things happen, and everything's a bit distorted, and there's only you and the food. It's, it's, you, you, you can't think about anything else. It's blissful. You just can't think about anything else. And then when you purge then you go into another altered state. And so some of us can just get addicted to just being in that trance-like state. Yeah. But we can't talk about that. Yeah. We can't talk about the purging. 
we can't talk about the restricting. And often, you know, as, as we hear people say, for many of us, it's not really about the food. We know that there's a very high correlation between eating disorders. And when I say eating disorders, that's across the spectrum. So to compulsive eating, to people who are blimic, they're compulsive eaters, um, but they get rid of the food through laxatives or throwing up, to the person who's restricting. Okay, so across that 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 spectrum, and the, there's a very high correlation between sexual abuse and eating disorders. And I know that when I was on that trance, like I was that kid going up to be abused and I was purging the filth out of me. That was the shame. The shame of not being able to come into relationship with the sexual abuse that I had experienced. Also, there is that hatred of the body. I, I... I hated my body. I hated the color of my skin. And not just because white people um, did things for me not to like the color of my skin. Black people too. You know, I have um, a brother here in the room, Ralph. We're dark-skinned people. And in our community, the darker you are, the uglier you are. The fairer you are, the more beautiful. So, you know, and, but we can't talk about that. So in a way, the, these taboos, it, you know, on the surface, you, you might see somebody who is, who is big and you think, oh, yeah, you point that finger. That person doesn't know how to eat. Well, stop pointing that finger, okay? Because basically, you know, if somebody is big, it's not about them not knowing how to eat. It's about how to soothe ourselves. You know, I can remember reading a book and actually it, in that book it was saying that food doesn't abandon us. Food is like a lover. It's something that soothed us. Yeah. Some, m many of us who had those eating disorders didn't get the love, didn't get that mother's milk, didn't get that soothing. And I still salivate. I can be in a restaurant and I can be in a restaurant ordering the food and I see a waiter or a waitress walk by with a plate and I'm like that. And what's that? And I want that. And I have to, my practice brings me back. You know, when I go into that room, I salivate. But now I know I salivate and I'm at risk. So this thing of um, food addiction, it's, it's, for me... It was, when I was in active addiction, it was a hell realm, a complete hell realm. For me, as a blimic, is secret. Nobody knows about it. And all the lying. You know, I could go somewhere and somebody would say, what happened to all that food? What happened to it? I had eaten it and thrown it up in the toilet. Sometimes I would break the, 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 break the plate and say, oh, well, it fell on the floor. There's this joke like, what's this? It's a blimmick in distress, trying to get the vomit down the plug sinkhole, the plug hole, you know? Um, and for me, I've never really spoken, you know, often people say to me, when are you going to write about food? And, you know, it's the first time that I've actually spoken a bit about this food addiction, about bulimia, because it's been the hardest 
thing for me to work with. It's been the hardest thing. You know, in terms of my um, abstinence, I haven't drank, you know, I, I did all my recovery in the rooms of Buddhism because at least when you went into rooms of Buddhism, there weren't the cakes and there weren't the cookies. So it was a safe space because I had to ban, to get myself well, I had to ban myself from going out anywhere socially because I literally, that I literally could not walk past a bakery without not being in the bakery and ordering all this stuff and walking out with the stuff. It just was not possible. So, um, one of my passions, I really, if there's one thing, if you ask me what I would want to do, and that is to open up uh, a, a rehab or whatever, specifically around eating disorders. I mean, you know, going to, uh, I went to FA, I mean, I'm, and, and it's like you couldn't talk unless you had abstinence for 40 days. The whole fucking reason why we're eating and stuffing food is because we've lost our voice, because we don't have our tears. And you're saying we cannot talk for 40 days. Yeah, because we have lost our voice. That I can remember going into a therapist's room and asking me, do I cry? No, but I cried in the food. That's where I did the crying. And so I was coming back to, in terms of my abstinence, um, I, it's been about 18 years that I haven't picked up alcohol. Alcohol was a gateway, was a gateway drug. If I drank alcohol, I would be in the food. Alcohol had to go. You know, I'd say the, the hard drugs, I was an upper person. I let go of those 17 years ago. With the food, I stepped onto that path 15 years ago. And for the first two years, I am... Um, didn't purge or anything and then I got into just just once a year just once a year I'd have slip and I'd perch you know and I just just once a year often be at an airport an airport is a terrible place for somebody who's got food addictions terrible terrible place and you know what I had somebody it was somebody it was two years ago actually I'd say I do have a date it was two years ago somebody who came here and they reached out to me after and said, will you mentor me through the eight steps around um, bulimia? Because I throw up around every three months. And I remember thinking, well, I still do it once a year. But I took it on. And I never told, I've told her now, she got me completely sober. Because from that point, I have not thrown up because she made me work my program. And I, and I just told her recently, I just said, this is, you know, you, you need to know that. You know, I couldn't tell you at the time, you know. And the last thing I say is that do not minimize. When somebody says something is a, an addiction, do not minimize. For me, I had a obsession with raw cashew nuts. Had to be raw, an obsession with raw cashew nuts. And somebody pointed out, mother's milk they were creamy because when I first allowed myself to give me food it was a banana and raw cashew nuts that's what I would allow myself to eat and you know over the years it would be seaweed I got into seaweed can you be 
obsessed, obsessed with seaweed. It's like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was a chronic chewing gummer. And I can remember when I was a chronic chewing gum, I remember um, being on a retreat and I remember the teacher saying, have you felt the pain of letting go of chewing gum? And I'm like, give me a break. The pain of letting go of chewing gum. Anyway, I did let go of chewing gum and I didn't really feel the pain. But raw cashew nuts, I'm telling you, raw. I've not eaten raw cashew nuts for about, um, it's nearly a year. But the pain of letting go of those raw cashew nuts. I sat on retreat nearly two years ago and I touched into the grief. It was like letting go of a bad lover. It really, the grief and the pain, I couldn't, it was so much. Again, answering your question, it was so much. I had to take time out and distract myself because it was so painful, but I knew I had to come back to it. So in that answer to your question, sometimes there is a place to escape if we know it's time out. That actually we need to take time out from the discomfort because it's so painful, it will overwhelm us and we'll get into the thoughts. And once we get into the thoughts, we've lost it. So I think there is a place for escape. And I needed to take time out because it was so painful. And so I still, you know, would have the nuts. But I came back to it at a time when I was able to. And it was painful letting go of it. But if you know, you know, this is the last thing I say with food. Pe- people are weird. It's like you tell them you have an issue with cashew nuts. I went to a friend's house and in the room they had a bag of nuts for me. You know? Yeah. You tell people that you have an addiction. Go on. Have the cake. Go on. People will put it in your hand. Go on. And so we have to give it back. Yet that there's a real education around this because for those of us who have food addiction you can often collude with it and it's so hard to say no you know it's so hard to say no so this is for me while food addiction and there's more it's like with body that goes into the taboo it's like if you're really underweight it's a taboo if you're seen as really overweight it's 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 a taboo and then that whole thing of getting better you know I had to learn to be bigger in the world and I still struggle with being bigger in the world and I've had friends who've had to learn to become smaller in the world because we know the world changes how I was treated when I was like that is very different to how I'm treated now and how somebody who's treated like this is very different when they get smaller. I've had friends who have actually had the surgery to help them lose that body weight and then they have not been able to cope with being smaller in the world because the world begins to treat them differently. The world treats us in the way that we look. Just like when I walk on the street, the world treats me because of my black skin. Yeah, The world will treat you, we, we see men on the street and the world will treat you because you are a male on the street. And the world will treat somebody who is seen as big, they will treat them in a particular way. And it's unconscious. You think you don't do it, but you do do it. If I did, if I did an unconscious bias um, exercise on you, how many big people do you have close in your life. If you counted 10 people you trust, how many big people
do you have close in your life? How many black people do you have close in your life? How many trans people do you have close in your life? How many people do you have in your life who are differently abled? Yeah. And that's the world we move in. And that's our unconscious bias. And we all have it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So beautiful. Um, I almost feel like I don't want to say anything because I just want to let you <laughs> let your words rest. Um, one of the things that I do for myself, um, and I'll just offer this, is kind of is a body, the meta on the body. And as I'm getting older and I have, I was anorexic and as was my daughter and many of my clients suffer body images, body um issues so it's bringing that to the actual physicalness just holding holding the the folds and the you know whatever we have judgment about so really bringing it to the body so i'm just going to offer that as, as as something in addition thank you thank you also again being connected more to the dharma and being maybe a little bit wiser. A few months ago, uh, my doctor in Seattle said, you have diabetes, you have type two diabetes. And my first thought internally was, oh shit. But my second thought, which I voiced was wonderful. This is great. Because of what it forced me to do which I've done ever since, is I look at the ingredients of everything I eat and drink. I don't drink soda. I've never particularly liked it. But um, we have lots of cookies back there. And I've been bad. I've had some of them. and I'm, But it isn't really bad because I've been aware I can eat two. And that's going to be it. I have a friend who has been diabetic for many years, and what they said was moderation in all things. And so I'm very, very careful, and I avoid sugar as much as I possibly can, and certain carbs, no more pasta. But you know what? I feel a lot better, and I'm being very, very mindful of what I eat and I drink. And for me, at this stage of my life, that is a real gift of awareness. Hi, I'm, I'm Amanda. I just want to say that um, I think that you're um, sharing, I have tremendous gratitude and that I've, I've had um, members of my Sangha um, also bring this up. And I just want to say that I think it's important to remember that there there is also privilege even within our community and that that's an example. So. Hi, I'm Stevie. And thank you so much um, for speaking about this. I feel like I've been shaking this whole time because I was like so excited to hear someone talk about eating disorders um, in these groups. And this is... Um, 
one of my big, like one of the longest journeys that I've been on besides things having to do with drugs and alcohol um, has been with eating disorder and um, all the different iterations of that. And um, it's just so grateful to hear you speak about it and to start to open up this conversation about like, what does it look like? And I think some of the things that you mentioned, especially um, that has really been a big part of the way that I've come to understand a lot of stuff in this realm that we're talking about that has to do with eating disorders and food and body is around secrecy and around, um, you know, and also around like how the world views the thing that we're doing. And um, for me, like that's a big part of it. When you have a topic that's taboo, like we're talking about the taboo addictions, um, you know, secrecy is like such a big, plays such a big role in that. Um, and also like the way that culture defines what's normal and what's taboo and what's not and what's acceptable and what's not. And I really appreciated what you shared about that because I do think that when we do talk about this, especially for me, when I talk about things having to do with eating disorders, I can't ignore the fact that we live in a fat phobic culture. Like we live in a very fat hating culture, just the same way that we live in a culture that's racist and transphobic and homophobic. And so pretending that these things don't exist in that context, um, changes the way that we interact with them and like I personally like don't I personally like have an issue with even talking about f like f being a food addict because it's we have to eat it's like the it's like breathing it's like being like a breathing addict like we have to eat um <laughs> and for me like I've spent so many times in different groups around eating stuff all, all so many different kinds um every 12-step eating related program available I've been a part of at some point and um as well as treatment and other things. And so um, some things that I've learned about the things that those have in common that I feel like are really important is that, um, you know, eating disorders do morph. And like you said, it's a spectrum. And um, just the way that addictions can morph, um, you know, a lot of people in our culture can get flack for being of a certain size. Um, and I've had so many people tell me how healthy I am when I was like afraid of eating a certain food and only eating these foods because like it was the only thing that I felt like I was allowed to eat and how much encouragement and support and love that I received from people when I would lose weight and how many and how different that was when my body changed and um and really talking about these things in their context I think is really huge I'm really grateful that this topic has been brought up it's a huge part of my life it's like probably one of the things I work with on a daily basis um and I would really like to see the conversation continue. And, and, and also what someone mentioned, like if it's not something that we have experience with, to really allow the people that have experience with those things to, to talk about what that's like and the things that are working for them. Because I've met so many people that have different things that work for them with their relationship with food and body image. Um, and it's really easy, I think, for me to want to project what works for me onto someone else or what works for someone else, like to feel threatened by that, that worked for you and that can't work for me. Um, but this is a big one, I think, where it's like a lot of these process addictions, like we have to kind of navigate on our own and really determining, like some people mentioned, like what is balance? What are the boundaries that I need in order to support my recovery? What are the things that pull me out of um, being in relationship with other people or connecting? And so I just really appreciate this topic and all of these. Thank you.
Thanks everyone for listening. Stay tuned next week for a talk by Vince Cullen on the Buddhist suttas and what they say about addiction. May we all find what brings us peace and share that peace with our communities. Bye.